This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 339th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and this very special episode is brought to you by Hulu's Little Fires Everywhere. For your Emmy consideration in outstanding limited series and all other categories. And now down to business. My guest today is a polarizing trailblazer who has had a front row seat to and personally shaped American history over the last 40 years, Hillary Rodham Clinton. Born Hillary Rodham in Chicago to a textile manufacturer and a homemaker, her sharp mind was apparent from a young age. She wound up graduating from Wellesley University, where, during her freshman year, she led the Young Republicans Club before becoming a Democrat because of civil rights issues, and where, in 1969, she was the commencement speaker, delivering remarks that received a seven-minute standing ovation and brought her national media attention for the first time. She subsequently graduated from Yale Law School in 1973, where she had been one of just 27 women in a class of 235 and where one of her classmates, who she began dating in 1971, was Bill Clinton, who she would follow back to his home state of Arkansas in 1974 and marry in 1975. Bill was elected in 1976 the state's attorney general, and in 1978 the state's governor. In 1980, he lost his gubernatorial re-election bid, but then, in 1982, won back the position, which he would hold until 1992 when he ran for and was elected the 42nd president of the United States. Hillary, meanwhile, had been busy making her own name, joining and ultimately becoming the first female full partner at the Rose Law Firm in Little Rock, the oldest law firm west of the Mississippi, working closely with the Children's Defense Fund, and tackling other initiatives delegated to her by her husband. Through all those years, she earned more money than he did, and in 1980, she also gave birth to their only child, Chelsea. After Bill's election as president, Hillary became the first-ever First Lady with a postgraduate degree and her own professional career, the first to have an office in the West Wing, and the second, after Eleanor Roosevelt, to really directly influence her husband's policymaking, most notably and controversially in her case on the issue of health care, but also on a host of other matters. In 1995, for instance, she traveled to Beijing to address the Fourth World Conference on Women, and famously declared in front of an audience that did not necessarily share her sentiment, quote, human rights are women's rights, and women's rights are human rights, close quote. Meanwhile, back stateside, America was becoming increasingly polarized, and Hillary became a particular lightning rod. That, of course, did not deter her from doing anything. In 2000, she became the first first lady ever elected to the United States Senate, representing the state of New York for the next eight years through the crisis of 9-11 and its aftermath. 
In 2008, she unsuccessfully sought the Democratic nomination for president, but the next year became the first former first lady ever appointed to a presidential cabinet position when Barack Obama, who had defeated her and then subsequently defeated Senator John McCain, became the 44th president of the United States and asked her to serve as his secretary of state. She held that position during his first term, visiting an unprecedented 112 countries during her tenure, while also famously being present in the White House Situation Room for major moments like the raid that killed Osama bin Laden. And then in 2016, she ran for president again, this time winning the Democratic nomination, which made her the first female ever to be the standard bearer for a major U.S. political party in a presidential election. On Election Day, November 8, 2016, she received 65,853,514 votes, more than any candidate for president from either party had ever received, with the exception of Obama. But in a shocking upset, the causes of which are still being debated, she came up short in the Electoral College, making her only the fifth person to win the popular vote but lose the electoral vote, and meaning that blustery businessman Donald Trump, whose campaign had centered on a promise to, quote, lock her up, close quote, among other out there positions, would become the 45th president of the United States, and that the glass ceiling for women in politics would remain unshattered, at least for now. Over the tumultuous nearly four years since the election, Secretary Clinton has largely stepped away from the spotlight, except to attend Trump's inauguration, to release a memoir entitled What Happened, to endorse the 2020 candidacy of Joe Biden, and to appear in a four-part Hulu docuseries about her life and times, that was directed by the Oscar-nominated filmmaker Nanette Burstein and entitled Hillary. It began streaming on March 6th, has been very well received, and on Monday was named the year's best limited documentary series by the Critics' Choice Real TV Awards. That same day, I spent an hour teleconferencing with Secretary Clinton, who was at the home that she shares with former President Clinton in Chappaqua, New York. And over the course of our interview, one of the longest that she has given, the 72-year-old addressed my questions about not only the Hulu docuseries, but also the major turning points in her life, the sexism, hatred, and conspiracy theories that she has faced throughout her time in public life, and the toll it all has taken on her, the 2016 election, and why she believes it turned out the way it did, the impact of Trump's time in the Oval Office thus far, and the urgency of denying him a second term, several hypotheticals like what advice she would give pre-2016 election Hillary if she could go back in time, whether she would beat Trump if she were on the ballot this coming November, and whether he should be locked up after he leaves office, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Madam Secretary, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. You are someone who I've admired my entire life. I was honored to vote for you in 2016, and I am very honored to have you on this podcast. And uh, I guess to begin with, how are you and your family doing during this weird time for America and the world? Oh, Scott. Well, thank you, number one, for inviting me on your podcast. And I think we're doing as well as we could. We are safe. We're healthy so far. Uh, we get to stay in our our house. We have all of our family now gathered once everybody got out of quarantine. So it, it is as good as it can be, but it 
doesn't make it normal to no. So if that makes sense to you, like you know, we, we have no real complaints, and we are watching what's going on in the outside world with the pandemic and the economic collapse and the extraordinary reckoning. We hope finally with systemic racism, we're watching all of that and hoping that you know we're going to come out of this as a country stronger and better, more unified, solving problems, everything that we know we need to do. So I will tell you, it's it's frustrating to be on the sidelines in a pandemic, but I'm trying to through, you know, speaking out and, and raising money for groups and candidates and doing everything I can to try to stay as involved as possible, even at a distance. Well, I guess one of the few bright spots of the pandemic is that it's probably enabled more people to watch this excellent docu-series about your amazing roller coaster of a life. And uh, and I was thinking about the fact that I'm sure over the years you must have had countless requests from people to to have your cooperation for a documentary or a docu-series. Why was this the time to say yes? Well, you're right. Um, there were lots of uh, feelers that people would put out to me but I was always in the middle of something. You know, I was in the Senate. I was secretary of state. I was running for president. And it was not only easy, but understandable for me to say, well, you know, I'm very sorry, but, you know, I can't obviously stop and do this. But after 2016, I was approached about doing a, a kind of retrospective documentary about the campaign. And we had about 2,000 hours of uh, behind-the-scenes footage that this very dedicated team of, of young videographers and film uh, makers had put together because they followed me around. And it was really like the fly on the wall. You forgot they were there. So they, they got a lot of really interesting stories uh, that they captured. And I thought, well, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll do that because I thought it was a terrifically good opportunity for people to meet those who were on the campaign, the staff, the supporters. And I wanted their stories to be told because obviously we thought we were going to win and it was just such a uh, disaster when we didn't, as we've now seen play out. Um, so I said, sure. And the producers, Propagate, picked a, a director, uh, Nanette Burstein, and she was just given all 2,000 hours and I was going to cooperate, of course, but it was primarily about the campaign, not about my life. And she came back after looking at all that footage and said, look, there's a much bigger story here. You know, there is a story of your life, but it's also the story of women's lives. It's a story of American politics over the last 50 plus years. And that's the story I want to tell. And would you cooperate with that? And for the first time in decades, you know, I wasn't running for something. <laughs> I wasn't in public <laughs> office. I said, okay, I will. And I think my answer, Scott, to be honest, surprised me a little bit when it came <laughs> out of my mouth. I had no idea, to be fair, what it meant. I didn't know it meant 35 hours being interrogated by Nanette. Um, but And no holds barred, right? I mean, it was, she could ask anything. She could ask anything. And that was part of her, you know, her pitch was, look, if I'm going to do this, it has to really be as comprehensive and as you know, open as possible. And you're going to have to work with me. And I said, okay. And I, I will confess there were moments when it was harder than others. And it was a very intense experience. 
But I I had a feeling about Nanette that she kind of got the bigger story. And she saw how, as some people have said, my life was like a Rorschach test for women's lives and American politics had, you know, changed a lot. And I was in the middle of a lot of that. So I said, okay, let's give it a try. So instead of having something that potentially would have been more along the lines of the war room, the, the 1993 documentary that was made about the 1992 presidential campaign of your husband, we end up with this much broader portrait. And, you know, I, I wonder if you can share what it was like for you to have to go back and watch, you know, sort of go through your whole life yourself. You, as you say, you haven't had much time to necessarily stop and reflect. You've written some books, but to sort of be asked stuff without necessarily being warned what it's going to be about from the good, the bad to stuff that you've rarely talked about the, the and understandably the Lewinsky stuff, all of those years that, you know, I don't think anyone would have been looking forward to that part of it, but was the whole thing cathartic or, or how would you describe it? That's a very good word. I don't think I fully understood, not being a filmmaker myself, what the final product would be. I knew that Nanette was meticulous in her preparation because she would show up for our multi-hour interview sessions with pages, uh, single-space typed questions. And I was impressed at how deep her preparation was and how she followed up with questions. She knew where, you know, how you know, point A connected to point B. She really had immersed herself in everything that was available that she could read or watch. But I found her to be one of the best interviewers I'd ever been subjected to and having been interviewed many, <laughs> many times. Uh, she seemed to get the larger context so she wasn't asking questions just to get my answer on the evening news. She was asking questions to try to place it into a historic uh, context that she was trying to understand and then present to the audience. So the experience of working with her turned out to be a very positive one, even though, as you rightly say, she asked everything and went everywhere. There was nothing you know, literally off the table. But I felt like she was doing it in the service of the larger story, if that makes sense. Right, not, not to, to be salacious or, yeah. uh, or just get a quote. Um, right. And then for you to subsequently go and watch this finished product, which I'd be curious when that was that you first saw it, but to then see not only your comments, but she got a lot of people from across your entire life, people that you grew up with, right through President Clinton. And I wondered what that was like to hear people talk about you in a way that maybe they hadn't necessarily done so freely previously. Well, when I saw the final product, I was, I think, simultaneously amazed at the footage she had found, some of which I had never seen, including about my own life, um, <laughs> as to the people she got to sit down and be interviewed because I did not know. Once I told her she could go do it, she went off and did it. And she mm -hmm. she tried to track down everybody she thought could contribute to the larger uh, story. So 
in a funny way, the first time I saw it was like an out-of-body experience because just everything about it, the energy of it, the you know, the impact of the uh, the photos and the music in the beginning, then as you're absolutely right, what people who I knew very well and people I didn't know that well talking about me and, and how they saw me and where they placed me in sort of political or, or women's history, I came away very impressed by the product. Mm-hmm. And then I had to kind of take a deep breath and say, well, I want to see it again because I really want to understand uh, how you put this together, because she used the technique, as you know, from watching it of, you know, jumping back and forth in time. It wasn't a chronology. You know, she did that and then she did this. It was connecting sort of all of the uh, internal threads together to weave this portrait. So I don't know what it would be like to watch something and uh, about yourself and feel like, number one, it wasn't done very well. Well, that would be, <laughs> you know, kind of embarrassing. Yeah. Or wondering where these people came from and why were they saying what they said. But her, you know, her work was, you know, just immaculate. I mean, she just got it. And so I, you know, it it was emotional. It, yeah. it was a real, you know, roller coaster. There was this, you know, there was a, a video footage of me being uh, burned in effigy for trying to get uh, health care for everybody, which I'd heard, but I'd never seen. And, you know, sitting there watching this and seeing myself being burned in effigy, given what's going on in the world today and mm-hmm. how really crazy and scary the time can be. I was like, wow, what was going on then and what is going on now that trying to get universal health care provokes that level of hatred. Mm-hmm. I mean, h- how do you even make sense of that? So I found I found the four episodes not only to be very fair, very well done, but also very connected to what we're still going through. Is there anyone who you would have liked to have been able to participate in the docuseries who for whatever reason, was unable to. I know that some members of your family, perhaps, but also, you know, I'm thinking of of people in your inner circle. I don't know if I know you've spoken to that your advisor, Huma Abedin, is like a daughter. I don't think I, I'm not sure if she I, I don't remember her being in it. But just are there people who you kind of wish you could add if you could do go do a fifth episode? Well, there are probably dozens of people. Um, I think from what I know about the process, Nanette asked everybody. Um, some people didn't feel comfortable or some people like Newt Gingrich hung up on her, <laughs> which, you know, I found very entertaining. Yeah. And then other people like my, my, you know, at that period of time when the filming was going on, both my brothers were having health issues and couldn't travel. And so there, so there were all kinds of uh you know, reasons why some people, you know, weren't in it. But I think she did such a great job capturing it. And then a lot of people she interviewed didn't make the final cut. Yes, and I yes. think when we had the the preview in New York, a lot of people came because they'd been interviewed, but they weren't in it. And so <laughs> Nanette had to spend some time saying, well, you know, you made the same point somebody else made. And, right. You know, so that was her job. I, I didn't have right. anything to do with it, but she was the one who had to kind of calm the waters for some people. That's show business, kid. Yeah, that is show business. <laughs> uh, so uh, I guess last 
direct question about the the docu series. I want to ask you if you can share who you would hope sees this film and and what they take away from it. I I was thinking about it because I think I watched it at about the same time I was watching this other limited series that's rolling out, Mrs. America, about the Phyllis Schlafly versus the feminists. And, you know, you could have been right in there yourself. And it's there's a lot of overlap. So I wondered if you who you're hoping the audience will be for your for your docuseries. Well, I would hope it would get as broad an audience as possible. You know, from what I've heard, obviously, people who support me, know me, were curious, they wanted to watch it. But I've been delighted to get uh, messages from people who never thought they would, either because they didn't think they'd be interested or because they might be on the opposite side of the political divide from me, who found themselves, maybe because somebody else in their household during the pandemic wanted to watch it. Uh, So I would like it to have as broad a reach as it can, in part because And as I keep telling people, yes, of course, it's about my life, but it's about being a young woman coming of age in the 60s. It is about taking on tough issues in our country. It is about, you know, trying to stand up for what you believe. I mean, so I think especially for young people and obviously within that young women, I've heard that it has been, you know, quite well uh, received because they can relate to it or they can see things in it that maybe apply to their own lives. Well, if if it's all right with you, what I'd like to do is kind of go back to some of the themes that the docuseries addresses, some of the topics, and just for people who haven't yet seen it, give them a little tease. For people who have, maybe we cover a little bit of different ground. But, you know, for people who, who may not know, when you were a kid, what were your greatest dreams and ambitions? What were you thinking you'd want to be when you grew up? <laughs> You know, I changed my mind all the time. I wanted to be an astronaut. And so I wrote a letter. Um, so I would have been, oh, gosh, I don't know, like 13, 14. I, I wrote a letter to NASA asking how you became an astronaut. And basically, they wrote me a letter back saying that, you know, they weren't accepting uh, women into the astronaut program. And, you know, that didn't change for quite a number of years. And I found it just amazing. I mean, look, I could never have been an astronaut. I didn't have very good eyesight and all the rest of it that you're supposed to have to be a a perfect physical specimen. But to be told I couldn't do something because I was a girl, that had never happened to me before. And that was a real eye opener. Oh, I went through phases where I wanted to be a journalist. And um, I wrote a little column in my junior high school newspaper. And then I thought I wanted to be a doctor. And eventually, you know, I I went to law school. But it was fascinating to think about how when I was a young girl, I did not know any women who worked outside the home personally, other than my teachers and the public school librarians. So there were not images or real life role models that I could look to. And that was the same for every you know, young girl who, like me, came of age post-World War II, you know, starting in the 50s, going into uh, the 1960s. And maybe for that reason, I, I understand that from an early age, somebody who you really admired was arguably the most active, impactful and divisive first lady prior to you. And that was Eleanor Roosevelt. And I wonder if, you know, you talk about in in your book, What Happened, which you wrote after the election, that while you were sort of processing everything, you and some friends went to Hyde Park to sort of pay an homage to her. 
Why was she somebody who was an important role model for you? You know, Scott, the more I learned about her, the more I admired her. I knew that she'd been an activist first lady during President Roosevelt's presidency, uh, that she had stood up for the rights of coal miners and and black people, and she'd visited soldiers around the world. And I, I knew that she had taken that role in particular and really expanded it. What I did not know was after her husband's death and President Truman becomes president, he asked her to be on the original committee that helped to establish the United Nations. I did not know that she was the primary driver of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and that we really, because of her determination and persistence, she was able to bring the world together, getting the Soviet Union to abstain and adopting what is still today one of the finest expressions of human rights and human freedoms that the world has ever seen. And she was largely responsible for that. And when it finally went through the, you know, incipient UN, she got a standing ovation, which, you know, doesn't happen in uh, those kinds of diplomatic settings. I just saw this woman who had been really rejected emotionally by her beautiful mother, who said she was an ugly duckling, she adored her handsome, roguish father, who was Teddy Roosevelt's brother, but he drank himself literally to death. She had such a lonely, sad childhood, but she wanted to be useful in life. And she kept making herself go out into the world and not, you know, live with her disappointments and that rejection. Uh, and I just thought it was a great model for people who feel sometimes left out or left behind. And she has uh, so many sayings that I adore, but she said, no one can make you feel inferior without your permission. Mm -hmm. So she's always been a kind of North Star to me. And and just the last thing it's, is when I was first lady mm -hmm. and I would go visit places, I cannot tell you how many times Someone would say to me, you're our second first lady. Eleanor Roosevelt was here before. <laughs> and it was such a reminder that she was tireless. I mean, she she wrote hundreds of daily columns. She wrote dozens of books. She was always trying to make a contribution to the world uh, that would maybe make it better or easier for somebody else. Well, you were obviously a very impressive young person uh, with your time at Wellesley leading to being the commencement speaker and then Yale Law. I wanted to ask you about a, a turning point shortly after that and just get your take on that. But just to recount some of the set up some of the situation, it's 1974. Bill Clinton, not yet your husband, goes back to Arkansas to pursue a career in politics for the first time. You go to D.C. to work on the Nixon impeachment. Later that year, Nixon resigns and you have to decide what to do. You're, do you follow Bill Clinton to Arkansas, or do you stay in D.C., or do you do something else? And uh, you did go to Arkansas, obviously, got married a year later. I wonder if you can just imagine for a moment an alternate universe, if you had decided not to do that, what do you think you would have done? And do you believe that you would have achieved more or less in the world of politics? 
You know, I haven't thought about that question, but others have. And and occasionally I'm asked and I find it impossible to answer because, you know, I, I obviously met Bill in law school. I started dating him. He did go back to Arkansas. He, he taught law there and then he decided to run for Congress. I did, as you said, I first worked for the Children's Defense Fund and then I went on to the impeachment inquiry staff. And when that job did end because of Nixon's uh, resignation, I thought to myself, I have to see whether or not this, you know, law school romance is real enough and lasting enough. And I can't do that long distance. So I did follow my heart to Arkansas, started teaching at the law school. Then, as you say, a year later, Bill and I married. And so when I when I'm asked, well, what what else might you have done? It's really impossible for me to answer because, Mm -hmm. you know, we were both considered, you know, top lawyers under 40. We were both perceived as having, you know, incredible uh, futures. But I never saw myself as a political candidate. I saw myself as an activist. I saw myself as somebody who would teach law, practice law but also spend a lot of my time doing not-for-profit work, particularly on behalf of children and families and, and women issues. And so I can't separate out what I might have done on my own or in a relationship with somebody different because, you know, I made that choice. And, and as I've said, uh, you know, it's been quite a ride. <laughs> uh, and so when did it first occur to you that, you in your own right could be a a candidate for office somewhere. I think that it was long before you actually were, right? Not really. And, and, you know, that is something. No, uh, I don't remember people seriously ever raising it with me until November of 1998. So I would have been 51 years old. And it's a funny story. So we're still in the White House and... The November midterm election is held, and shortly after that, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was one of the senators uh, from New York, said he wasn't going to run again in 2000. And almost immediately, my phone rang, and it was Charles Rangel, the long-serving congressman uh, represented uh, Harlem in the House in uh, Manhattan, he said, I'm calling to ask you to run for the Senate. I said, you're crazy. You are absolutely (laughs) crazy. I mean, literally, I totally shut him down. I said, absolutely not. I, you know, I'm not going to do that. Um, He said, no, no, really. I've talked to some people. We really want you to run. And of course, part of the reason he wanted me to run is because Rudy Giuliani, who was then mayor, was going to run for the Senate. And Charlie was looking for somebody who he thought had a big profile and could raise money and compete with Giuliani. So I was the person he settled on. And I said, no, absolutely not. No, literally until finally I changed my mind and said, "Okay, I'm going to try it in like March or April of 1999. But that was the first time that anybody seriously asked me and that yeah. I had to think about it and that eventually I decided, okay, I'm going to give it a try. So ever since you became a public figure, which obviously was well before 
you you know you ran for office let's say probably when bill was first elected and when he was first elected in what was that 78 he was first elected attorney general in 76 and then he was elected governor in 78 then he lost in 80 and then he won in 82 and yes. yeah on it goes well from that time when people were first getting to know you you were as the docu series shows in in horrifying detail you were getting flack about your name, you were at that point going by Hillary Rodham, then they didn't like that. So it, you know, the, your, your voice, your cl- all through the years, the, you've been asked to answer for things that are kind of unbelievable. In the docu-series, you, you speak about the fact that when you were one of the few women at Yale Law, you, I think, first came to understand that you had to kind of keep your emotions in check to, to be taken seriously. But then when you become a public figure, people increasingly to want to see, you know, what your emotions are and what you have to say. (laughs) So I guess I just wonder, how does constantly being picked apart for decades impact a person? Michelle Obama has not been a public figure for nearly as long as you have been. But in her new document or the new documentary about her becoming, she says it it made her much more guarded. So I, I have to wonder the toll it took on you over a much more extended period of time. It's a great question, Scott. And it it's the classic double bind that women find ourselves in. When Bill was active in Arkansas, there were some there was a lot of curiosity about me. And as you say, I, I started off keeping my maiden name. It was the name I, you know, practiced law under and taught law and everything, and had written some, you know, some like academic sort of articles under. And so it seemed to me to make perfect sense, but it was quite disturbing to a lot of people. And eventually I just said, fine, I'll add, you know, Clinton to Rodham and that that will take care of that. But it was a real, you know, learning by by fire experience. But it wasn't as intense when he was governor of Arkansas as it turned out to be when he became president, because when he was governor, I still drove my car. I would take my daughter to school. I would take her to ballet class. I would go see my friends. I practiced law. I was, you know, living a very, you know, full life in addition to being married to the the governor. And that was fine. And then Bill put me in charge of helping to reform Arkansas schools. And people were grateful that I was willing to take this volunteer job and work hard for them. And we made some really very significant changes, which I'm, I'm, you know, very proud of. So I didn't know that going to Washington would be as different than even the experience that I'd been having in Arkansas until literally we were in the middle of the 92 campaign and everything I said and everything I did and everything I wore and all the rest of it was, you know, under this really bright spotlight. And then when Bill said to me, gee, you know, we want to reform health care. Why don't you do <laughs> in Washington what you did in Arkansas? Oh, I naively said, sure, why not? Um, so it it is a trial by fire, especially if you want to do something. If you And, and even if you don't put yourself too far out into the public arena. You're going to get criticized for something by somebody. And I had to learn early on in Bill's political career to take criticism seriously, but not personally. And by that, I mean, you know, look, there are things you can learn from your critics because sometimes your friends won't tell you that you're messing up or that you could do something better. But, you know, sometimes the critics have a point. But you cannot allow criticism to literally 
undermine your self-confidence, to destroy your own ideas and, and your dreams. And so trying to walk that balance all the time. And I'm glad you brought up uh, what Michelle Obama said is because after a while, you know, people say, oh, we want to know what you really think. Well, you say what you really think, and then you get hammered for saying what you really think. And so much of that is rooted, let's be clear here, in misogyny and sexism. It's like, okay, yeah, it's fine to have an opinion, but I want it to agree with my opinion. Um, or why can't you smile more? Or why can't you wear different kinds of clothes or a different hairstyle? Everybody has an opinion about a woman in the public arena as a first lady, as Michelle Obama certainly discovered, or certainly as I did with that, but also as a candidate on my own, as an office holder on my own. And, you know, I and young women ask me all the time, you know, what advice can you give us? If You know, I'm think I'd like to think about politics or a public career. I said, again, I'll go back to my, you know, one of my favorite Americans, Eleanor Roosevelt. She said, if a woman gets into the public arena, she'd better grow skin as thick as the hide of a rhinoceros. <laughs> you know, you just have to be ready to be criticized and you have to be prepared. If you're going to go speak about something, know what you're talking about. I mean, one of the funny things that happened during the 2016 campaign is occasionally I would be criticized for being prepared. Well, <laughs> we now know what the opposite of preparation right, is. Right. We've seen that, unfortunately, for three and a half years. Uh, so you just you just have to dig down deep. And, and it's one of the reasons why, and I think the Obamas um, certainly have talked about this, you know, you oftentimes shrink your circle. You know, you go back to people you've known forever. You go back to, you know, a really tight circle of trusted aides because you don't know who to trust and you're not sure how you're going to be viewed or or misinterpreted or taken out of context. So, yeah, I think it happens to people in public life in general, but I think women with strong opinions who express themselves, who take on tough issues, are often the subject of even more intense and sometimes virulent criticism. Well, on a related point, you in 2008 were running for president for the first time and ended up becoming the first female candidate to win a delegate binding presidential primary in New Hampshire. But I want to remind our listeners what preceded that, which was that so you, you started the Iowa caucuses, finished third, which was I know, disappointing to you. You now go to New Hampshire ahead of the primary and there's some sort of a meeting with voters and you appeared to become emotional while talking to somebody about how passionate you were about what you do. And it was only after people felt they had seen you show emotion that the tides turned and you ended up winning in New Hampshire. What does it say that people needed to see you cry? What does that say about us as a society? You know, I've thought a lot about that because people do say that was a real turning point. I mean, it was such an intense focus period because I think the Iowa caucus was less than a week before the New Hampshire primary. Everybody was running on fumes. Everybody was exhausted. People were under so much pressure. And clearly, as you say, you know, it was Obama and Edwards and I who were left out of what had started off as a big field. And I must have done, I don't know, six, seven big events every day as soon as I hit the ground in New Hampshire and I wasn't getting any sleep and all the rest of it. 
And so when I was in this sort of intimate setting, because, you know, you'd alternate big rallies with trying to actually talk and listen to voters. I was in like a coffee shop or a restaurant. And this woman says, well, you know, how do you do it? Literally, my eyes did well up. A tear didn't drop, but my eyes welled up. So that was clearly emotional, you know, hitting an emotional chord. And that's when I, you know, talked about it. And I, I talked about how important I thought it was, what we were trying to do and all that. And it's fascinating because... I, I, you know, I didn't know that question was coming and I certainly didn't know how I would respond and, and how vulnerable I was because I was so tired and everything was happening. Because usually if a candidate cries, it's over. Mm-hmm. You know, Pat Schroeder, who was one of our savviest, smartest members of Congress who ran for president, concluded she had to, you know, withdraw and tears came and literally... I hope she continues to live a very, you know, full and wonderful life. But her obituary will say she cried. Ed Muskie. And, you know, the big debate, was it tears or was it, you know, snow that was melting on his face? But it was considered disqualifying. So what happened to me, because I somehow was sort of in the, you know, the, the neutral zone. Yeah, show emotion, but not too much emotion. It ended up not hurting me. And obviously, you know, I ended up winning New Hampshire the first time, uh, you know, a woman had ever won any contest in uh, American uh, presidential campaigns. So it's it's fascinating to try to unpack all of this. And, you know, Nanette in the documentary tries to do that. I mean, she tries to sort of pull the curtain back so people get a view of what's happening. And then fast forward, there's another scene from the 2016 campaign where I'm, again, talking to a group of women, and in this case, I think it was in the Philadelphia suburbs, and and a woman says, well, you know, a lot of people think that women can't be president because you get too emotional. And I laughed because I said, well, you know, a lot of people don't think I have any emotions. (laughs) So, you know, you're always trying to walk this really narrow tight wire between, you know, being yourself, for better or worse, here I am, take me as I am, and sort of meeting the expectations that people carry around literally in the back of their heads about what leaders look like, what presidents look like, how women are supposed to act, everything that goes into the the complicated assessment that we bring to looking at women in the public arena. So another thing that Democratic candidates have to deal with, and you had to deal with this ahead of 2008 and 2016, are people who literally exist on a diet of Glenn Beck in the morning, Rush Limbaugh in the midday, <laughs> Sean Hannity in the evening, Alex Jones on the weekend. What do you think somebody who who was subsisting on that sort of a diet actually believed about you going into the ballot box? Oh, my gosh, Scott. I mean, I would have friends of mine, and this happened more in 2016, who would go out knocking on doors for me. You know, people literally I had known since kindergarten, people whose weddings I had been in, who families I knew well, et cetera. And uh, they would knock on a door and they would say, I'm here to ask for your vote for Hillary Clinton in the name of Pennsylvania primary, whatever it might be, or general election. And sometimes people would say, I can't vote for her. She fill in the blank. You know, she murders people, whatever the crazy thing was that they were coming up with. And my friends would say, well, that is not true. And they would say, Either, but I saw it on TV, or I heard it, or I saw it on the internet. 
And so this has been around a long time, but the internet, even probably more now than the people you named off, they not only feed these lies and these conspiracy theories, this crazy stuff to people on their shows, but now it gets amplified on the internet. So, you know, after the 2016 election, there were a lot of academic research studies that were done trying to figure out, you know, why people ended up voting the way they ended up. And there was a particularly interesting one out of Ohio State where they found people who said they had voted for Obama in 2012 and then for Trump in 2016. And they were trying to figure out why. And a significant proportion of them said they they did so based on something they saw on the internet. And you know, that I was dying. I was endlessly dying. I was constantly dying. In fact, you know, this interview, uh, you know, you were interviewing a ghost. I mean, it just was never ending. And and then things like, but Pope Francis endorsed Donald Trump. No, he didn't. Oh, yes, he did. Where did you see that? I saw it in the news. Where did you see the news? I saw it on Facebook. Right. And so, I, you know, I have a million of uh, such crazy counterfactual examples. Um, but... When you meet people who really do believe that, they've been captured by a, a worldview and you try to inject facts into it, but sometimes, you know, they don't they don't accept the facts. Uh, Pope Francis did not endorse <laughs> Trump and call the Vatican and ask them. Right, but, right. But what they view as real comes to them on their screen. And too many people were manipulated by, you know, the right wingers, uh, the purveyors of, you know, all of this counter, you know, reality uh, by the Russians who are quite good at influence operations. And that's the thing that, you know, I, I really was struck by because I didn't understand that it was happening during the 2016 campaign. But when I tried to make sense of what had happened and I wrote a book called What Happened?, uh, I, I could sort all that out and see the threads of it and how powerful what people see on the Internet or what they hear on Fox News or what they hear from, you know, Limbaugh or Jones or any of these other people uh, is and how they view the world and then how they view somebody like me. Well, I, you might have to do a sequel called What's Happening because this hasn't stopped. <laughs> I wanted to just read back to you uh, a few troubling things that suggest that maybe Democrats and Republicans are not living in the same reality a Yahoo News YouGov poll conducted in May shows that 44 percent of Republicans believe Bill Gates is plotting to use a covid vaccine to implant microchips into people. Then you've got all the other lovely constituencies, the Alex Jones people who were promoting the idea that you were running a pedophile ring out of a pizzeria basement and somebody ended up getting uh, shooting up that pizzeria for, for that reason. The QAnon folks who think there's a, a deep state plot against Trump. And of course, now this whole new wave of people who won't wear face masks because they think that's a way to own the libs. How did we get to this point? Are, and, and how do people who still live in reality, how are we supposed to combat this? This is the key question. And I'm so glad you asked it because all too often people in your position who are, you know, uh, established journalists and, and you, you, you have a, a platform kind of say, oh, that's so crazy. You know, who, who believes that? And so why would I even talk about it? Because it's, it, 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 it's not real, but it is unfortunately all too real. I don't know the answer to your really important question. I have some thoughts about it. Look, 
people, unfortunately, are influenced by the information that they receive. And we are living not only in a country divided by our politics right now, but by a country divided by the channels of information. If you're a Fox News watcher, there's a very recent study that pointed out you didn't take COVID-19 seriously because literally for weeks it was being, you know, derided and belittled as a hoax in line with what Trump was saying on, on Fox News. And so people you know, were given really not only false, but dangerous information that did not prepare them for uh, what we've seen with this pandemic. So we are divided by sources of information. And there's a lot of concern on the part of everybody who thinks we need to try to unite our country and try to get back to facts and evidence and, and making decisions that will benefit the vast majority of Americans, that it's deliberate. You know, if you if if you create algorithms for Facebook, controversy drives more clicks. Conspiracies are just, you know, mana from heaven. You know, they will get people's attention. You mentioned the the Pizzagate uh, totally made up story about a pedophile ring in a in a pizzeria with a uh, which didn't have a basement and the whole <laughs> thing was just ridiculous and easily disproven but people for whatever reason were fed this and they were fed it deliberately and they passed it on and then they got invested in it so we desperately need leaders again and it doesn't you know it doesn't matter what your partisan leaning is you know big government small government this on the cultural front, that on the, but at least we need people who will model good leadership and who will try to bring conversation, the public conversation back to, you know, reality, to a fact-based reality. And we've seen this, you, you mentioned at the very end, the masks. Well, people still have a level of respect for a president, any president. And, you know, when the president said, drink bleach. Sadly, <laughs> there were a couple of people who took him literally. Yep. And when the president won't wear a mask, because of whatever reason he doesn't want to do that, there are people who feel they've been, they've been given permission not to wear a mask. So you need different leaders who are modeling a more reality, science-based approach to everything from, you know, pandemics uh, to voting. And it can't reverse if if there's so much money to be made or votes to be gotten by keeping people in a state of anxiety and fear and anger and keeping them at odds with their you know fellow uh, Americans over stuff that will drive voters in one direction or another. So this is a very deep and broad problem that we face. And I'm, I'm really glad you asked about it because I would love for... The community that you, you know, work in to understand the opportunity as well as responsibility that storytelling has to try to penetrate some of this. And I'm also impressed by this latest effort called, you know, uh, No Hate for Profit, where advertisers are are 
pulling their advertising from Facebook. Facebook has to be held accountable because they trafficked in conspiracy, they trafficked in misinformation, they trafficked in Russian, you know, disinformation, and they've got to be held accountable because we're going to have another election and everybody should know what's at stake and then cast their vote accordingly. So a lot of the people who opposed you in the in the various presidential elections, the two presidential elections, had agendas that we've referred to. There were two points that came up that I'm saying this as someone who voted for you. I believe, you know, they were a little bit more grounded in reality. There are issues that they raised. And I want to offer you a chance to just respond to it. First of all, there are some people that are saying we're a country that was founded to escape a monarchy. We have hundreds of millions of people here. Is it a good thing when following in the footsteps of the Adamses, the Harrisons, the Roosevelts, the Bushes, to have another multiple presidents from the same family? What is the answer to that objection people raise? Well, you know, in this country still, uh, anybody can run for president. It doesn't mean you could be successful at it because it's a gauntlet, but the voter holds the ultimate power. So if I put myself out there or George W. Bush put himself out there, uh, voters can take that into account. And clearly, you know, some did. They said, OK, you know, we don't want dynasties, you know, whatever. But I was a really unique candidate because I was running to be the first woman president. So it it kind of balances it off. And I also had a track record. I wasn't just coming from nowhere. I'd been in the Senate for eight years. I'd been secretary of state for four years. I'd been an activist first lady. So people could judge me on my own merits. Absolutely. So I think it's I think it's a perfectly fair question and even criticism like, OK, you know, Adams, Roosevelt's, Bushes, Clinton's, wait a minute. And voters should take that into account. But I think I was the most qualified person running in 2016. And uh, I think that should also be taken into account. The other thing that I think, you know, I don't know why this would have worked against you guys, against you any more than it would have worked against Trump. But there were people that said, we see that you you and President Clinton attended his wedding in 2005 or whatever, that President Clinton has golfed with him, that Chelsea apparently may have known Ivanka at some point. There's this perception, as you know, that there's a incestuousness about politics, which he somehow has been able to capitalize on. But I wonder, you know, what's the response to that? You know, that is, is, is funny because th- those were encounters that were you know, not very, not very many and not of, you know, great moment. Uh, certainly to me, we, all, you know, we all lived in New York. We all encountered each other. And until he became a Republican, Donald Trump supported Democrats in the New York uh, delegation and elsewhere in the country. And, you know, literally we were invited to his wedding and Bill was making a speech in Palm Beach. And I thought, wow, I'm going to go see what this is about. And it's, you know, again, it's a fact that people can take into account. And I don't know what happened to the person who supported Democrats uh, and then became a birther questioning, you know, President Obama's birth certificate and then became, you know, a a variantly anti-immigrant candidate when he had used immigrant labor for everything he built. I mean, I don't know. It was all opportunistic. 
Um, so yeah, I did know him just like I know, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of people. And if, if anybody wanted to take that into account, that's, that's America. You can take, you know, my hairstyles into account. You can, you know, take, uh, my pantsuits into account. You can take anything into account. It's your right to decide how to vote. I just don't want people to overlook my qualifications, my track record, my experience, what I had accomplished, because they get sidetracked with stuff that, you know, at the end of the day is not going to make the country stronger, is not going to make your family, you know, more secure and the kinds of things that I have always stood for. You talk about in the docuseries the very painful night and aftermath of the election. And I want to ask you about one thing that I'm not sure was covered in in the doc series, but that I've wondered about as I try to put myself in your shoes. Did you ever believe either before the election or certainly after it that he would actually try to lock you up as he had been vowing to do and kind of revving his audiences up to to support? That's a very good question, too. And nobody's asked that that I can recall. You know, he got so out there in the stuff he would say and how he would fire up his crowds uh, when he asked the Russians, you know, to do things for his campaign and all the rest of it. I didn't know what he was capable of. Look, when I lost, which was such a surprise and still to this day, I don't think we know everything that happened. I did hope that, okay, he can grow into it. I mean, this is an awesome job with huge power attached to it for good or not so good. And and I was hopeful, you know, and, and between, you know, the election and the inauguration, I thought, okay, you know, maybe this won't be as bad as I feared. And then, of course, I went to the inauguration and I heard that speech, which was dreadful. <laughs> and I was stunned by its divisiveness and nasty spiritedness. Look, if I had ever done anything wrong, he would have gone after me. Let mm-hmm. me put it that way. Yeah. Because, you know, I've never done anything wrong. I'm, you know, as they, as some people like to say, you know, the most investigated, exonerated person uh, in recent history. But if he could have found anything that he thought could impose, you know, some kind of cost on me, because at the root of this, Scott, is he fears... That his win, that narrow win in the Electoral College, was not legitimate. Part of what he does in the way he lashes out is because deep down he knows the Russians helped him, despite his incredible efforts to deny it. He knows WikiLeaks helped him. He, he understands all of that. So if he could, as he has tried to do, to go after people all the time, uh, and thankfully you know, without a lot of success, he would have because he's a vindictive score settler and he doesn't want the legitimacy of his election ever to be questioned, although history will continue to question it. So thankfully, you know, I never did anything that gave him any cause despite his best efforts. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, what I hope we can do, if it's all right, is with our last few minutes here, just sort of a a rapid fire round, the first sentence or two that comes to mind. Sure. Let's start with this. What is the greatest threat facing America today besides the pandemic that we're trying to survive? Internally, our divided house. Mm -hmm. 
that is undermining our unity and ability to deal with everything from a pandemic to racism, income inequality, everything else. Externally, it re it remains uh, the threat of nuclear, biological, chemical warfare, and now we have to add uh, disease and climate change that go, unfortunately, hand in hand. Do you think there's any chance that we will ever learn that the two that in 2016 the Russians manipulated not only voters but vote counts? Well, we know they manipulated voters. There's an excellent new book out called Rigged by uh, a young journalist named David Scheimer. And he explains uh, in very compelling detail how the Russians' influence operation worked. Now, there are still a number of people and a lot of unanswered questions about what they were doing probing registration bases and what they were doing probing election systems. And so far, that has not been uh, nailed down, but the influence certainly has. Does any part of you look at the pandemic, the economic collapse, the protests, everything that's going on at the moment and say, I'm actually relieved that I don't have to deal with this? No, not never. Not a day goes by because, look, we, we wouldn't have been able to stop the pandemic at our uh, borders the way that, you know, Trump claimed in the beginning. But we sure could have done a better job saving lives, modeling better, more responsible behavior. I don't think we necessarily could have had or should have had as deep a an economic assault uh, on uh, livelihoods and jobs as we have. So I feel like I know I would have done a better job. And I also think that this moral reckoning over systemic racism is obviously long overdue and it can't go unanswered, but it needs to be you know, handled in uh, the smartest, most acceptable way. If Trump is defeated in 2020, will he leave without a fight? I don't know the answer to that yet. I, I think it depends upon how big the loss is. And that's why they're doing everything they can to prevent people from voting. You know, they want to stop, you know, mail-in voting. They want to shrink the number of places that people can actually vote in person because they know if we have a big turnout, they lose. And so we're going to have lots of fights over actual voting procedures uh, between now and November. And if they can do anything that makes it look questionable, they will. And that's why everybody needs to come out and vote. I don't care where you live and have as big a turnout as possible so that there can't be any excuse uh, given. When Trump is out of office, should he be locked up? Oh, you know what? I believe in the rule of law. Um, if uh, if there's evidence that he should be investigated, then hopefully a nonpartisan, very deliberative process would be used. Not what we're seeing in the current Justice Department, uh, which is undermining the rule of law and our institutions. If you were on the ballot in 2020, would you beat him? Yes. But I think people believe that this is a referendum on him. Right. You know, when he ran before, they, you know, people who knew him mostly knew him from reality TV. And so, you know, he'd been in their living rooms and he was a businessman and he looked like a billionaire and he drove, you know, rode around in his big plane and all of that. So they kind of thought, well, hey, you know, give the guy a chance. Let's see, what, you know, what he can do. And now everybody, <laughs> I think, knows what the consequences of that have been. If 
2020 Hillary could go back in time to pre-election 2016 Hillary and give one piece of advice, what would it be? You know, the thing that really I look back on is the difficulty we had in defending against the action that Comey took 10 days out from the election and putting out a statement that I was being investigated again, even though it turned out there was nothing new there and there was no there there. And I would have figured out a better way of countering that because it it really did raise, you know, understandable questions in voters' minds. And I watched internally as my numbers dropped in key places like Pennsylvania, because all of a sudden this was back in the news. So if we could have figured out a better way to counter that and and not let it drag on, and also the craziness from WikiLeaks. I mean, you know, Tom Friedman, the columnist from the New York Times, said, you know, I'm one, I'm one of the few people who actually read her emails, and that's one of the reasons I think she should be president. But they were being characterized and grotesquely used uh, to make cases that were not there. So we we could have and should have done a better job on that. These are very quickly the last five uh, one sentences. Uh, should the Electoral College be abolished? Absolutely. I've said that since literally 2000. Who has done the best Hillary Clinton impersonation? Oh, gosh. You know, it's a tie between uh, Amy Poehler and Kate McKinnon. <laughs> uh, if one day you were to wind up in an elevator or a waiting room with James Comey, what would you say to him? Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> uh Will there be a female president in your lifetime? I know you've been working to advance oh, female candidates. Please. And, you know, in this time we had more candidates and all that was good. And I keep, you know, hoping we have more and more. And, uh, yeah, there will be. But I, I'd like it to come sooner, not later. In your 1969 commencement speech at Wellesley, you referenced T.S. Eliot's East Coker saying, quote, there is only the trying again and again and again to win again what we've lost before, close quote. Not to take that too literally, but is there any chance that you would try again to? <laughs> no. Uh, no, not at all. <laughs> no, no. I, I love the poem, but no, no, yes. no, no <laughs> last not in the one. cards. <laughs> last one. Uh, when your grandchildren are old enough to ask you grandma or whatever they call you. Grandma's uh, what they call me, yeah. If they were to ask you, Grandma, what did you do before you were a grandma? What will you tell them? Oh, I will. I will tell them that I was somebody who tried to help other people and be brave and kind, which is what I tell them to be. Well, I can't thank you enough for all of your service. Forget about how grateful I am for doing this. It's uh, you are the ultimate model for the rest of us. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Scott. Great talking to you. And you good luck and stay safe and healthy. <laughs> you too. Thanks again. <laughs> Take care. Bye. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in.